Father, as we look into your word in a portion I was not expecting to preach this morning, we pray for your grace, that you would do what only you can. There are so many needs, so many fears, so much anxiety represented in a congregation that no human being can successfully speak to all of it, but your Holy Spirit can. And Father, you can care for each one as if they were the only one. So I pray that this portion of your word, written nearly 2,000 years ago, would come alive again in our lives so that we would hear its wisdom, its encouragement, be called to obey it, and experience the blessing that it promises. In Jesus' name, amen. First, some good news. It's provisional good news, but it's good news. A few weeks ago, we told you of an unexpected and significant need in our construction uh, where we would need to replace a very large section of the cable that will connect the new building uh, to the old. It appears that that is no longer going to be necessary. It appears that everything is in order at a much lower cost. So that is wonderful good news. I call that provisional because we're not yet entirely sure uh, of, of the final cost, but it will be much lower, and that is in large part due to some of you who, hearing of the need, offered your expertise and gave us a new way to look at it and a new remedy that has now been applied. The city has approved uh, everything that we've done so far. I'm not yet sure. I just got back from Israel and I woke up eight times last night, so I'm mildly jet-lagged. You might not trust me with any facts or figures this morning. You say, that's a terrible thing to say before you teach the Bible, and I completely agree with you. Pray with me. So, I can't give you complete assurances, but it appears that we are in very good shape, which makes it only right to tell you this. We raised money in a way that we never have before. We've never asked for ourselves in the 13 years that I've been senior pastor, but I gave you a large challenge of raising $100,000. We've raised, in a very short period of time, about 70000 Thank you. Praise the Lord. Good job. We raised it for a specific need. Not all of the money given, it appears, will be needed to address that specific need. So it's only right and honest for me to tell you where we are to ask you to continue to pray that there are no further developments, that there are no further controversies or unexpected surprises. We expect this week that everything will be clear, everything will be signed off, will be good to go for the future. And in that case, since we asked specifically for a need and you gave very generously toward it, I can tell you, if you want your money back, we will gladly give it back to you, okay? There, I'm serious. It's, it's unethical to raise money for one cause and then when the cause turns out to be much smaller, to say, well, thanks anyway. Uh, you need to know there is a, churches have a terrible reputation about being all about the money and spending on whatever they please. We have never and will never operate under those conditions. So you gave it toward a construction need. You gave it toward a construction need. All of your giving given toward the building fund can easily be applied toward the building fund, but since we asked specifically for an electrical need and that cost now appears to be much lower, I'm telling you, stay tuned. If you would like your 
contribution back, we will gladly, with no questions, give it back to you. So keep that in mind, and that will always be the case. Folks, you are the Lord's people. We are the Lord's people. You earn and give from what the Lord provides. It is the Lord's money. It's not my money. It's our money for a brief time to manage and to make decisions over in conjunction with church leadership. But we never treat anything you give to us as our own. So I wanted to give you that good news and ask you to continue to pray for us because, well, if you've ever built anything, you know, right? Now then, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, but just uh, this morning after a very restless night, I've decided to set the next paragraph in Luke's Gospel back a week and talk to you from an entirely different part of Scripture. At this point, pastors often claim that God led them or guide them or spoke to them. I believe it's wise. I believe this scripture is necessary. But I can't tell you in a mystical way that God has assuredly spoken to me regarding this passage. Sometimes we can be a little manipulative in the way we talk about our relationship with God and put other people, especially in a bad situation, because we say to them, well, God told me to, and then we tell them what we want to do. If you go to Bible college or seminary, you'll discover that sometimes people break up with you because the Lord told them to, <laughs> which is extra tough because you're not only being dumped by your boyfriend, you're being dumped by Jesus, and that's really <laughs> very, very difficult. So I'm not telling you that I have a, a, a revelation, but this passage speaks to me. I may be preaching this as much for myself as for you. But while we were in Israel, I was blissfully unaware of news for 12 or 14 hours at a time. But when we returned to our hotel, and we had a wonderful trip, thank you for your prayers, I would check in on national news, and it was just one unfolding horror after another. So that a few years ago, before things are as dire as they are now, the World Health Organization said that we are the most anxious people on earth. You can talk to the very old or you can talk to the very young. Everyone has a sense of dread, it seems, in the center of their lives. So we'll hear Jesus next week in the Gospel of Luke. Today, I'd like to, dire to direct you to two simple verses, which we'll read together in 1 Peter chapter 5. You can open your Bibles there, 1 Peter chapter 5. And you can call this a pastoral audible, if you like. 1 Peter chapter 5. The people who received... Peter's letter found themselves confused, surprised, and discouraged by suffering. In the very first chapter, Peter speaks of their trials and says, what is happening is your faith is being tested by fire. In the fourth chapter, he tells them they should not be surprised by this sort of suffering. They should only make sure that they are actually suffering for being Christians. Because, and there's the practicality and the reality of the Bible, many people who are Christians do unchristian things, pay the price for it, and then say, they're persecuting me because I'm a Christian. No, they're persecuting you because you behaved ignorantly. You committed a crime. You were cruel or selfish or stupid. 
And this kind of consequences always come with ignorance, criminality, and stupidity. I'm a witness in my own life. But, Peter says, to those of you who are suffering under God's will, he has encouragement for them. And here it is. Read this with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. These are explicit instructions on what to do when you're going with God through the fire of trial and testing. What are you to do? Specifically this. Read it again with me once more aloud. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's work through this phrase by phrase. It won't take long. When you're in trouble, when your faith is being tested, when you're being unduly and unjustly persecuted, when life is simply hard and you find yourself in suffering, study the Bible with me. What specifically are you told to do? To humble yourself. You like that? Does anybody enjoy humbling themselves? Not one person. As you know, we're, we're in a youth pastor search, and we've received many, many resumes. One young man was immediately disqualified, at least on my account, when he identified his greatest strength as his humility. <laughs> See, you know that's funny. Humility is that rare thing that once you notice you have it, you've just lost it. Humbling yourself, literally in the Greek language, means to lower yourself. That's understandable whether you know Greek or not. When you're in trial, when you're in suffering, you are to go lower, and the instinct is to do the contrary. When you're being pushed down, when you're being crushed, the natural instinct is to stand up, to get stronger, to fight back to claw your way up. And Peter says, humble yourself. And what he says next is vitally important, and it makes all the difference. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And Peter is reading to people who are familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. He himself grew up going every Sabbath to the Scriptures and hearing, as we saw in the synagogues of Israel on this tour, the Scriptures read and explained week by week. The people of his day would have been very familiar with these Scriptures, and what it means to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God has echoes of the Old Testament. The hand of God in the Old Testament, you can read through the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy or do a word search for the hand of God and you'll see that simultaneously it stands for two things, discipline on the one hand and deliverance on the other. So God sets his hand against Pharaoh, for instance, or reaches out his strong hand to lift up and rescue his people. Discipline or deliverance. So Peter says, when you find yourself going through hard times, the first thing you are to do is to get low, but not just any place. You are to humble yourself, lower yourself under the strong hand of God, who is able at the same time to discipline, to correct, 
or to bend down and lift up. And that's the hard part. And if you look in the verse above, it's not on the screen, but if you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 5, look above in verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What's the connection? The connection is this. The way I can always tell whether I'm being humble under God's hand is not what I claim about God, but how I'm treating you. It's very easy to claim that you have aligned yourself under God's direction, but the sure symptom of how you're doing in your trial is not the way you speak about God, but the way you treat other ordinary people. Because if you're humble, you won't lash out. If you're humble, you'll take direction. If you're humble, you'll be teachable and correctable. If you're humble, you will take encouragement. That's why Peter says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Most people have a hard time telling when they're submitting to God, but it's pretty easy to see how we're treating other people. And if you're really humble under God's hand, you will be humble in the sight of everyone else. So you get low, first of all. Then it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Ray's a teacher and a good one and has taught generations now, both young kids and now adults. And a verse like this, if you look at it very carefully, and you look at its little individual clauses, you don't have to be a grammarian, you just have to be a slow reader to understand what God is telling you in His Word. He's telling you, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. In other words, accept what God is doing in your life. You're going through a hard time, you're going through the fire, you're going through testing. If you refuse to claw back, to fight up, to stand up and make yourself strong, if instead you submit and you take shelter under His hand, which is able both to discipline you and to deliver you, that means that you'll be accepting whatever it is that God is directing into your life. If you've suffered foolishly because of your own sins and mistakes and stupidity, you'll be willing to hear that. And you'll take that correction from the Lord and you'll say, this is my fault, this is not persecution, this is actually the natural consequences of behaving poorly. Does anybody, can anybody here relate to what I'm talking about this morning? Very small children have a terrible time accepting any of their responsibility. When I was a little boy, like many little boys, I was forbidden to go into the cookie jar, and I literally got caught with the proverbial hand in the actual literal cookie jar. And the story I tried on my mother is that a cookie was left out on the counter and I was putting it away. <laughs> she laughed about as hard as you did before the discipline kicked in. Someone who is humbling themselves under God's hand will take responsibility. 
and say, this is my fault. Or I've done nothing wrong, but I am a devoted, faithful follower of Jesus, and they persecute me for his sake. And in human life, it can be quite a bit of both at the same time. You, begin, you can begin to suffer as a Christian and then get carnal and stupid and make it much worse than it ever could be. You ever try to correct your kid and end up needing to apologize to him? Ever be wronged by your spouse, pointed out, and end up apologizing for something much worse that you said by way of trying to secure your apology? Where do you find refuge? Where is there learning? Where is there rest? Only one place, under the mighty hand of God, which positions you in your attitude and your actions that God is at work in my life and I will accept it. I'm not pushing his hand away and thrusting forward with my own. I am accepting what God is doing. And the benefit is, he says, at the proper time he may exalt you, but this last clause, this last bit of of these two verses, tells you specifically how you humble yourself. And it's counterintuitive. Let me read it without the center. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you take the benefit out in the middle, you'll discover that what you're being told at the end of the verse, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, Peter is telling you how you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And it's counterintuitive. The way you humble yourself under God's hand, in other words, the way you accept what God is doing in your life is you throw all your anxieties on him. It's not a matter of adopting a pious look and rolling your eyes skyward and posturing yourself publicly as the greatest and most beleaguered saint in all of Christian history. Peter says real humility is this. You lower yourself under God's hand In times of trouble, you accept that God is still working, that he is free and able and willing and sovereign to both discipline and deliver you, and you will take shelter under his will. And the way you will do that specifically is by throwing all of your cares, all of your anxieties on him. How specifically does that work? That is a life of continuous prayer of recognizing that when anxiety begins to fill my soul, what that means is I am taking control of the situation. Because there's a big difference between taking responsibility and taking control. Pride makes you unwilling to take responsibility, and pride also makes you want to take control. And it's the craziest situation in the world, and anyone who's ever been in a difficult relationship can attest to it, where you're in a relationship, at work, in marriage, in friendship with someone who takes no responsibility but wants all control. Have you been in this experience? You know, it's, if I may, again, this is very impromptu a little bit, I just discovered, I just decided this morning to preach this particular passage. If you'll allow me one digression. It's amazing how many Christians laughingly admit to being control freaks. Think about it. You serve the sovereign God who spoke everything into existence and who upholds it by the power of his own word. 
and you'll say, I'm a control freak? What are you, crazy? Control of what? You can't control your next breath. So, yes, I can. I'll hold it. That's pride. Stop. <laughs> you never know when your life will be cut short. You can't control anything. Why do you want to control your husband? Why do you want to control your wife? Why do you want to control your kids or your committee? Why do you want, why do you want to control the universe? Only one reason. It's what is epidemic in all of us, beginning with me. It is the root of all sins and the first sin, which is pride. And Peter says, in times of trouble, you get low under God's mighty hand, which is contrasted with your weak, trembling hand. And the way you'll do that is you are casting all your anxieties on Him. And the word is very strong. You're not only going to politely rest your anxieties on God, you're going to hurl them onto Him. You're going to cast them. You are going to throw your anxiety on Him. And Peter tells you why. Because He, what? He cares for you. It's a word play in Greek. Sounds like this. Throw all your cares on Him because He cares for you. In other words, you've got a choice in times of trouble. You can either carry it or you can cast it into God's hands. Those are your choices. There's only two things you can do in times of trouble. You can carry it and bear the weight and feel noble and strong and long-suffering and try to draw attention to yourself and say to others, do you see how I'm struggling and suffering for Jesus? Aren't you proud of me? I hope they make a brochure. I hope there's a slideshow in the future somewhere tell other people how great I am. No. Throw all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon explained it like this. I believe that God cares and cares for me. I believe that He will bring me out of my distress and make it promote His own glory. How long do you do this? Here's what we're being taught. The way through fire, the way through trouble is down. The way you get through trial and persecution and the ordinary anxiety of life is you lower yourself by coming under God's sheltering hand. And you will specifically know that you've done that when you begin to throw all your cares on Him. This is honest, earnest prayers that sometimes can't be printed. And I don't mean that they're profane. I just mean that they're too vulnerable. They're too painful. If you want to learn to pray like that, pray after David in the Psalms. Read with David in Psalm 13 saying, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It's quite a question. And by the last verse, by the sixth verse, he's saying, I will sing again because the Lord has been good to me. What changed? David got rid of his burden by putting it into the Lord's hands. And there are so many Christians so anguished about everything. And you're letting, you're letting the news and personal conversations afflict you with a burden so heavy that you can barely function. May I suggest to you that we've only just begun? That if you read the Bible, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets any better? I'm not a prophet. I've just read the end of the book. 
what shall we do? We will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the way we'll do that is throwing all of our anxieties, all of our cares on Him because of this great truth. He cares for us. Because my pride tells me there's no one to help. I must do this myself. Or I must do a great deal and ask for God's help at the right time. And the middle section. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. How long do you lower yourself under God's hand? How long do you lower yourself under God's hand by continually throwing your anxiety on Him? You do that until the proper time when he decides that you've had enough and suffering has served its purpose and he then will exalt you. And it may be the hardest part of the verse because when would you like suffering to be over? Yesterday. Never mind now. I'd like it to be over always. One pastor theologian said at any given, I'm paraphrasing because I read it a long time ago and it stuck with me though I didn't memorize it, that at any given point in your life God is working on about 10,000 different things, two or three of which you may be aware of. How will you know? You won't. You don't have to know, you can trust Him. You can trust the one with the mighty hand who disciplines and delivers. You can cast all your anxiety on Him in the confidence that He cares for you and at the proper time. What's the proper time? Only He knows. There's no telling what sort of character He's trying to develop in you. Only suffering teaches patience. Success does not teach patience. Success teaches joy and gratitude perhaps, but never patience. There's nothing to be patient for when you're succeeding. You may, God may guide you through being mistreated by others so that you will learn to forgive them. Jesus was the greatest forgiver ever. Even as they tortured and killed him, he said from the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. My goodness. Only suffering teaches some valuable lessons that God is trying to work into your life. And if you buy into, as I so readily have, into the American ideal that you are an American and you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and not only that, you have Jesus. You're a Jesus-following American, so certainly success will follow at every turn. And every setback and every suffering is either evidence of failure or that perhaps God has forgotten you. If you take that attitude, you won't develop in that attitude into the person that Jesus died to make you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, He, that same God, may exalt you, lift you up, vindicate you, show you, if not the world, that it was all worth it. What do you have to do in the meantime? You are to be continually casting all your anxieties on Him because through all this trouble and through all this trial, you have this blood-bought assurance. He cares for you. Someone will say, how will I know that God cares for me? He sent His Son to die in your place. The righteous for the unrighteous. 
the holy eternal Son of God become flesh to be tempted as we are but without sin, to be tempted with the same anxiety and dread that fills every human soul except his because when he was faced with those temptations, he rejected them and he remained faithful to his Father so that at the end he said, it is finished. And at the end, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit so that you, his disciple, his follower, who humbly exchange the sin in your life for the righteousness of Jesus are exalted into the family of God. They're to be treated as God's own child, not an object of his wrath, only occasionally an object of his discipline, not because he aims to destroy you, but because he aims to refine you and make you more like the son who died for you and brought you into God's family in the first place. What is there really to be afraid of? Scripture answers that. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, man can do a great deal. He can bring a great deal of suffering into your life. He can set you in circumstances that make you fearful and anxious. What are you to do? Read it again with me and we're done. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Can I be specific and practical? Have you been holding on to your cares instead of throwing them, hurling them, casting them onto your heavenly Father? If that's true of you, it's been true of me on and off my entire life. Could I invite you to take a moment of prayer and name the things that weigh you down and relinquish them to Him? They'll come back, and as soon as you recognize them, the only wise, loving, smart thing to do is to throw them back into God's hands. Tell Him about it. There's a single person here who does not know this Savior I've been telling you about, this Jesus who died on the cross. His outstretched arms on the cross were for you. I protect myself from suffering. Jesus welcomed it. He walked deliberately into trial, into suffering, into injustice, into death so that you could have life instead. My invitation to you in his name is to turn away from your sin and yourself and come running to Jesus. And if you've never humbled yourself enough to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you died to be my Savior. Here are my sins. I don't deserve it, but accept me. I don't deserve it, but forgive me. Make me your disciple. Bring me into God's family. Jesus has never once rejected a humble person who has come with that honest confession and repentance and said, I can't save myself. Please, Jesus, you do it for me. If you do that this morning, please let us know on the card that's in your bulletin. There's nothing greater that could come from an impromptu sermon than some of you who have been right on the edge finally coming to faith in Christ. 
and maybe for you, the next step is baptism. You, you're a disciple of Jesus, but simple pride, embarrassment, awkwardness has kept you from being baptized. Can you signal today that, that you'll step forward and obey Jesus and be baptized? Lord, listen to our prayers. Thank you that you can listen to hundreds of people at once and hear all the anxiety, hear all the fear, hear all the nervousness, hear all the confession, and welcome us into peace. Take us each under your mighty hand so that you will do your good work. And at the proper time, Lord, when your work is done in us and through us, you will lift us up. This offering, Lord, is a simple expression of faith. This church is generous because many people have learned to trust you. Bless the giver, bless the gift. May we always steward, Lord, these sacred gifts that are intended to expand your kingdom, to do your work in the world. May you do more with them than we could ever ask or expect. We give them to you with gratitude in Jesus' name.